Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. So, Mania, who did you talk with this week? Sefi, I had the privilege of speaking with two fellow journalists from the Times of Israel, Jacob Magid and Eric Cordelessa. Jacob explained the latest developments in the International Criminal Court's examination of the tension between Israelis and Palestinians and whether any war crimes have been committed by either party or both. And Eric explained why anti-Semites see the impeachment of President Trump as a Jewish conspiracy. Sefi, tell listeners who you spoke with. I spoke with Rabbi David Levy, the director of AJC's New Jersey office, about the ongoing efforts to fight anti-Semitism in that state in the wake of the shootings last week in Jersey City. Let's hit the show. This week, the House of Representatives voted for only the third time in history to impeach the president of the United States. After 11 hours of debate on the House floor between Democrats and Republicans over Trump's conduct with Ukraine, lawmakers voted almost entirely along party lines to impeach him on charges that he abused his office and obstructed Congress. But nowhere in that 11 hours did anyone mention or condemn the term Jew coup, which is making the rounds in anti-Semitic circles as a way to describe the plot to impeach the president. This troubling term, combined with the rise of anti-Semitic incidents across the United States and other troubling signs, has American Jews concerned. Here to discuss some of those signs is Eric Cordelessa, who covers American politics for the Times of Israel. Eric, welcome. Thanks for having me. So depending on who you ask, some people believe Wednesday's impeachment vote was nothing but a pre-election political ploy. Others believe it was a victory for the Constitution and the rule of law. But regardless of party affiliation, what does it mean for American Jews? Well, American Jews are deeply involved in the impeachment process at a range of levels. For one, they are some of the leading members of Congress who have been behind the impeachment inquiry and leading up to the vote. That includes people like House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff. That includes House Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler. And one of the things that you've seen as the impeachment process has ramped up is that anti-Semites on the fringes have really begun to adopt and amplify an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that it is in a cabal of Jews who are behind an effort to oust the duly elected president of the United States. Hmm. And this is concerning a lot of Jewish leaders because we're already amidst a period when anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise, and specifically anti-Semitic acts of violence. So I think the concern is what's going to happen as the impeachment process moves forward. Now we're grinding into the process where we're trying to negotiate a Senate trial. Uh, What's going to happen with these conspiracy theories? Are they going to be amplified? Are they going to be given a megaphone? And you know, the worst possible scenario, of course, and I don't want to sound overheated, is that it could inspire someone to do something crazy to act violent. And, you know, this is not unprecedented given recent history. Robert Bowers, the man who shot up the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, said that he was motivated because he believed that Jews were responsible for bringing migrants into the country through caravans. So um, this is something that's sort of happening on the fringes, but the concern is that it's going to start, you know, making its way into the mainstream, depending on how 
people at the highest levels of leadership respond to these ideas. Yeah. So now take us through, you just talked about some of the high-profile positions held by Jews. Take us through the cast of characters in this impeachment process. Sure. So, you know, in Congress, you know, some of the leaders on the House side include people like, as I said, Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler. There's also Elliot Engel, who's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, one of the real sort of cheerleaders for the impeachment process, who's been sort of an intellectual leader uh, on the impeachment front, has been uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin uh, from Maryland, who's Jewish. So those are sort of the main players in the House of Representatives. Um, it's also true that some of the lawyers who the uh, Judiciary Committee called to testify several weeks ago to, you know, give the sort of the historical and constitutional view of what constitutes impeachment, whether the president's abuses or alleged abuses of power and obstruction of Congress merit an impeachment itself, you know, all three of the pro-impeachment lawyers were Jewish. Uh, that was Noah Feldman, Michael Gerhardt, and Pamela Carlin. Uh, and then there are other players involved who are Jewish, including Ukrainian President Vladimir Solinsky. Some of, of the other uh, people who worked in Trump's administration who were called to testify are Jewish, like his ambassador to the European Union, um, Gordon Sondland, and other officials as well, like Alexander Vindman. So there really are quite a few Jews who are involved uh, in the impeachment, really, from a bunch of different angles. Mm -hmm. Though I have to wonder that in a lot of white supremacist circles, Jews are seen as the puppeteers, the people behind the curtain. So even if there weren't Jewish characters in this drama, I have to wonder if these uh, conspiracy theories would still be alive. They absolutely would be. And in fact, they are. I mean, one of the sort of really troubling events that happened in recent weeks was Glenn Beck, who's got a highly watched show on his channel called The Blaze, ran an entire segment calling George Soros, the wealthy Jewish financier who's at the center of a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, you know, generally about things he has nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. um, he made he did an entire segment about how he was, quote unquote, the puppet master in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So some of the sort of, you know, usual suspects, as they were, are appearing on these sort of anti-Semitic channels and on social media. Uh, you know, regardless of whether Jews or not are involved in impeachment. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned the term Jew coup earlier. Tell us where that comes from and what other troubling terms and signs are emerging on networks like Glenn Beck's or others. Yeah, I mean, the term Jew coup, uh, hard to know exactly where it originated from, but it got its original sort of amplification when the founder of True News, the sort of fundamentalist Christian platform that has a vast history of publishing anti-Semitic, homophobic, racist content. He uh, published a video in which he blamed the Jew coup that was responsible for the impeachment of Trump. This came out back in November as the process was really ramping up, but he said that this was essentially a Jewish farce. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, you've seen sort of more and more figures of part of the far-right movement pick up that term. There's a popular anti-Semitic platform called UNS, the UNS Review, UNS.com. And you know, that's a frequent sort of theme that is often sort of expressed on those pages. So, you know, the Juku is essentially a conspiracy theory that is being promulgated from far-right anti-Semitic extremists who believe that what is really driving this whole impeachment is a bunch of powerful Jews who want to get rid of this president to advance their own interests. In fact, there was a piece on UNS that criticized President Trump for his policies vis-a-vis -vis Israel, saying that he, you know, rewarded Israel and in exchange got betrayed by American Jews. 
So it's these sort of theories that are sort of taking hold in these corners of the Internet. Okay. So now, has any of Trump's rhetoric encouraged this? I mean, I know that we were out on the streets a few weeks ago testing people's knowledge on anti-Semitic terms, and one of the gentlemen that we stopped asked us a question about shifty shift. He said, I've heard that's an anti-Semitic term. Can you explain why? And, you know, that came out of Trump's mouth. So I'm just curious if anything he has said has encouraged this. Yeah, well, a number of people I spoke to for a piece we just published today in the Times of Israel made that exact argument, that Trump's language and rhetoric has not only feeded this impression, and, you know, first and foremost, around impeachment, you would say his calling out him shift, shifty shift. That's sort of the most overt example during these proceedings. But a lot of rhetoric that he has used, comments he's made way before this are something that a lot of people who sort of track extremism and anti-Semitism say has sort of given the you know impression to a lot of these people that this kind of thinking is legitimate. Mm. So that goes back to some of even campaign rhetoric. You remember his final advertisement uh, leading up to the days before the campaign talked about, you know, globalist power figures who were out to, you know, dominate the economy and showed pictures of prominent Jews like George Soros and Janet Yellen. Um, This has to do with his comments in Charlottesville, saying that they were very fine people who marched alongside the neo-Nazis and not immediately condemning them in the harshest terms possible. It's other rhetoric more recently that he used when he addressed Jewish Americans at the Israeli-American Council in Florida. He said Jews would vote for him and not for his one of his potential Democratic opponents in a general election, Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren, because they wanted to protect their wealth. He also (laughs) accused American Jews of dual loyalty by saying that they didn't love Israel enough. I mean, these are anti-Semitic tropes that have a sort of deep-seated place in, you know, extremist rhetoric and extremist thinking. And when the president himself is promulgating them, it sends a message that, hey, this is tolerated, indeed, maybe even welcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the concern for a lot of people is that, as these ideas are getting more traction, you're not going to have the kind of scolding of them, the complete denouncing of them that you would need from people who hold the highest positions of authority. And that not just comes from President Trump himself, but also from Republican leadership as well. So why not? Why aren't we hearing condemnations on the House floor, on the Senate floor of this kind of language? Well, on some level, I'm not sure how aware many legislators are of this pattern. Uh, of rhetoric that's been emerging. So that's one thing. Um, As far as whether you're hearing it from President Trump or Mitch McConnell, I mean, you know, one thing, obviously, Trump doesn't like to bash people who like him. Hmm. Um, So, you know, he's shown that that's that's a very clear pattern. So, you know, he has looked the other way on a whole range of sort of contemptible behavior when it's coming from people who are in his corner. That's one thing. Um, And I think the other thing is that, you know, Republican leadership has been pretty subservient to the president in recent weeks and and recent years. They have not wanted to buck him. And I would imagine that that is one of their reservations. may not be a legitimate reservation, but I imagine that it is one of their reservations. Okay. Well, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this develops, whether indeed he faces a trial in the Senate and uh, what the debates are like there, uh, and also what the conversations on the fringes are as well. Eric, thank you so much for explaining all of this to us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Hi, my name is Belle Yoeli, and I'm Chief of Staff to AJC's CEO and Director of AJC Global Forum. 
During these troubled times, rest assured that AJC is on the job, working to ensure a safer and more secure future for all people. Together, we can combat anti-Semitism, defend Israel, and safeguard Jewish communities across the globe. Join AJC in this fight. Don't miss the chance to have your gift and impact doubled. Donate before December 31st at AJC.org donate. And now, a word from the Times of Israel. Hey everyone, I'm Sarah Tuttle-Singer, the new media editor at Times of Israel, and I'm so excited to tell you about our Times of Israel community that we've recently launched. This is a tremendous opportunity for behind-the-scenes insight, a place where we can get to know each other better, where we'll have live discussions with some of our leading journalists and our founding editor, David Horowitz. The Times of Israel's community is like having a backstage pass to your favorite show. I hope you'll sign up, you'll join us and be part of our community. And in order to do so, all you have to do is read an article on Times of Israel. And there at the bottom, we have a link so that you can be part of this really exciting initiative. Thank you so much. Rabbi David Levy is the director of AJC's New Jersey office. Over the past week, he has been at the center of much of the response to the anti-Semitic shooting in Jersey City. He joined us in studio this week to help fill us in on the situation there. David, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Jersey City Mayor Stephen Fulop, who is Jewish himself, was right at the center of the response to this attack. What have we seen from other New Jersey elected officials like Governor Phil Murphy? Are we satisfied with the way that New Jersey has responded? I think we've been really happy with the response that we've gotten from our leaders in New Jersey. Uh, Governor Murphy has been out front. He's been in Jersey City himself uh, many times throughout the past week. He's met with interfaith leaders. He's met with the families of the victims. He's met with members of the community. Uh, He took part in an interfaith study session right before the weekend to really connect with the religious leaders of the community. Uh, We were with him at at the governor's mansion Uh, for a Hanukkah celebration that had been previously scheduled. And both he and the First Lady, Tammy, uh, spent a good amount of time talking about what had happened to the Jewish community, their support for the Jewish community. Attorney General Gerbeer Graywall has been an amazing partner and friend during this past week. I think he's brought a sense of calm and thoughtfulness. And I really have to give a a special recognition to uh, the director of the Office of Homeland Security in New Jersey, Jared Maples, who has, he and his staff have really worked hard to be in touch with all of the Jewish leadership throughout New Jersey to make sure that we were keyed in on what was happening with the investigation. I met with him yesterday along with our director of global communications, Avi Mayer, and one of the things uh, Jared stressed to us was that uh, they've been in one of the key parts of their investigation has been determining is there any continuing threat, and he was very clear that 
based on their investigation and on federal investigation. There are no continuing threats tied to this particular incident. Mm -hmm. I can just say in in my role kind of as host here, uh, somewhat impartial observer, I can say that there's, um, you know, no organization that has done more to survey the field uh, when it comes to anti-Semitism in America than AJC here. I think in our show notes, we should link to the anti-Semitism in America study that AJC uh, put out recently. And listeners, uh, all of you can check that out for yourself to understand the state of play when it comes to anti-Semitism in America. I would say, in fact, when we met with the Office of Homeland Security, it was to introduce them to that survey, which they found to be very useful to them in their work supporting the Jewish community and fighting this threat of anti-Semitism. They gave us a lot of uh, kudos for the work we've been doing and how useful they're finding it. Let me ask you um, something of a complex question now, David, which is, I think many of us noticed that this shooting didn't receive maybe the media attention that we would have expected it to receive. And I can think of two possible reasons why that might be. One is, as some people said, 20 years ago uh, during the Crown Heights riots, where similar to Jersey City, uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews were the, uh, were the victims, quote, they're not our kind of Jews. And so because they don't look like Jerry Seinfeld, you know, people muster less sympathy when Haredim are the, uh, are the victims. The other is, um, quite frankly, that the perpetrators were not the kind of people who we prefer to see killing Jews, right? Obviously, we don't want to see people killing Jews, but I think American Jews in general have kind of a liberal mindset and expect that when Jews are victims, white supremacists will be the perpetrators. That was not the case here. So because of those two complicating factors, perhaps there was a lackluster response, perhaps lackluster attention paid to this incident. Do you think that that's right? Well, I think certainly there's a a piece of this that involves the fact that the uh, ultra-Orthodox community can be seen as somewhat insular, and so people don't feel as naturally connected. Um, I, I think that that may be at play. Certainly the fact that we've come to expect violent anti-Semitism to come from white supremacists made this incident not fit maybe the story that most people have in their heads. I would add another piece from some of the things I've heard. Many people are wondering if maybe we're becoming a little inured to this following going back to to the shootings in Pittsburgh and the fact that in Pittsburgh it was 11 people killed in a synagogue during worship. Following that, we had Poway, which certainly again was in a sanctuary and again um, felt shattering. We had Christchurch, which hit the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. And some are wondering if maybe we are getting a little too used to hate crimes yeah. and violent hate crimes that involve killings. Uh, I hope not. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do since, especially through some of the statements we've put out, is to make it clear that even one life lost to hate is one life too many. It's scary to think that this might be the new normal, and it's up to us to make sure that no one really feels that way. In the aftermath of the shooting, an elected member of the Jersey City School Board, Joan Terrell, posted on Facebook calling Jews living in Jersey City, quote, brutes, spreading the wild conspiracy theory that, quote, six rabbis were accused of selling body parts and asking if, quote, we are brave enough to explore the message that the shooters were trying to send. 
Both Mayor Fulop and Governor Murphy have called on her to resign. But this raises the larger question, what kind of conclusions should we draw about the state of black Jewish relations in New Jersey? Well, first of all, let me say that we also condemned her statements. And I think her statements drew from that well of toxic language that only causes anti-Semitism to thrive. Uh, she deleted the post, but then later doubled down by saying she she meant it. So I, I would double down by saying she truly does need to resign. There's no place on a board of education, especially for someone who would speak that way. In terms of the relationship between the black and Jewish community in New Jersey in general, I have to go to my own experience, which is very close relationships with leaders from the African-American church world, from the Muslim world, the variety of relationships that we have both personally and professionally uh, don't point to an overarching issue. But I do think we have to pay attention to the fact that There are certainly tensions in various of our communities between black and Jewish uh, members of those communities. And in Jersey City, there certainly, from everything I've learned, and I don't live there, but from everything I've learned, uh, there are some underlying tensions between the black and the Jewish community in that area of Jersey City. They're not worthy of the language that was used. They certainly have no connection from anything I've heard or anything I know, no connection at all to this incident. But perhaps they've opened our eyes to the fact that we do need to redouble our efforts to bring together our communities to work on those issues that are often economic issues that cause deep despair within their community, to work on those issues together and to see how our communities can work together to rebuild our relationships and strengthen them to the mutual benefit of of both our peoples. Well, that that brings me to my last question, which is kind of where do we go from here? You know, I saw this morning that support totaling $1.5 million has been sent to Jews in Jersey City. I assume that they don't need any more money. So what does the community need? How can we at AJC help? How can our listeners help support the Jewish community in Jersey City? I've been heartened by how much money seems to have been uh, raised for all of the families of the victims. Um, They certainly need and deserve our support. Uh, It was wonderful that with the support of the community that Mr. Rodriguez, who his family's wishes were to bring him back to Ecuador to be buried in his home country, that that was able to happen and happen This is the Latino man who was killed. He worked in the store. Exactly. Um, I was heartened that our uh, medical examiner worked very quickly and expediently to make sure that the Jewish victims could be buried according to Jewish tradition and that there would be no delay in their burial. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those initial good things have happened. I think the work that needs to happen going forward is a lot of the relational work that AJC has been very involved in, that other members of the Jewish community have been involved in. I have to give a bit of credit to my colleague, Rabbi Leanna Moritz, who is the rabbi of Bethel Congregation in Jersey City, who immediately brought together people for a healing service, who brought together people for that interfaith study session that I, that I spoke of. And I've been in touch with Leanna about 
how can AJC help her in the next steps? And the next steps, I really think, um, speak to what we were speaking about before. Certainly, healing rifts that may that this may have been brought out in the Jersey City community. And certainly, our, as AJC, doubling down on our efforts to combat anti-Semitism in our society, making sure that we didn't just do a survey, but now we're using the results of that survey, which we are, to inform federal authorities, which it was shared with the FBI recently in a briefing, to share it with state authorities like we did with um, Homeland Security, to share it with our congressmen and senators so that as they encourage the use, for instance, of our definition of anti-Semitism, the IHRA um, definition of anti-Semitism, not as a legal tool, but as a educational tool so that they can uh, recognize anti-Semitism and combat it in all its forms. I think we need to be, as a community, very focused on those kinds of efforts. Right. When you get right down to it, there's no one else who's going to come in and wave a magic wand and make anti-Semitism go away. No one else is coming to fix this problem. At the end of the day, it's up to us. David, thank you so much for all of your hard work for AJC and for the Jewish people in New Jersey. And thank you for joining us today on People of the Pod. Thank you. In January 2015, the International Criminal Court announced it would open a preliminary investigation into the situation in Palestine. Five years later, that investigation is still ongoing. Here to explain why is Jacob Maggot, the Times of Israel Settlements correspondent, who has been covering this issue for the past year. Jacob, welcome to People of the Pod. Hi, thanks for having me. So the ICC announced it would be examining the Palestine situation. Those are their words. What is this so-called Palestine situation? Can you define it for us? So they were purposely broad, but they asked to look into three specific issues and then left an area open for various other issues that may come about in reaction to those issues. So the three issues that they said they'd look into broadly were the 2014 Gaza War, And then because of looking into the Gaza war, which they've come out to a second subject that they now look into as well, are these protests um, that are known as the March of Return protests Mm -hmm. um, that have started after the Trump announcement to move its embassy to Jerusalem. That happened started last March. And and the third topic that they look into are Israeli settlements beyond the Green Line. Um, So they include in that East Jerusalem and then obviously in the West Bank as well. And those are the three main subjects that are considered to be part of the situation in Palestine. So now, how was this announcement received five years ago, both by Palestinians and by Israel? So amongst Palestinians, I think the response was relative excitement, particularly amongst supporters of the Palestinian Authority, um, which obviously has kind of shrunk in recent years because this was seen as the new route for them to take to kind of get some sort of degree of international legitimacy. The idea of justice is a very important part of the Palestinian narrative, and this part was they believed that through this they could get some sort of justice for 
what they consider the Nakba and in general the establishment of Israel. And with peace talks kind of that had fallen apart earlier that in 2014 under the, with the Kerry talks as they were known by Secretary of State John Kerry, um, this was the new route the Palestinians were taking. And, and the fact that the ICC had agreed to open up this investigation kind of gave Palestinians, at least the leadership amongst the PA, a certain degree of hope. Um, and Israel is obviously met with a great degree of trepidation and um, but also angst and, uh, and anger amongst the members of the government that spoke out against it. But I think if you spoke to foreign ministry officials at the time, I think there was still some sort of um, wait-and-see approach to it because belief entirely that based on their dealings with the ICC, and I think some of the members that might have been reaching out to or Israel been in contact with, kind of saying that this is not just going to be an investigation of Israel only, but it's also an investigation of all what's happening in this situation in Palestine. And that includes Hamas rocket attacks at Israel during the Gaza war, and includes various other instances of terror attacks and other instances of violence that happened in this situation in Palestine. And meaning that the Palestinians are opening themselves up to the same types of scrutiny that Israel is in this investigation, and it's not going to be necessarily one-sided. So I think there's this kind of wait-and-see process, and I think with the update that was given this past week, that might have paid off this uh, willingness to wait and see what will happen. So did it seem that the Palestinians thought this was going to be a surefire indictment of Israel? Did they not realize that it was going to be a more balanced examination? Yeah, I think the hope at the time was definitely that this was going to be something that could work in their favor. The international community in general um, has been very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, and therefore there was little reason for them to believe, or at least their understanding at the time, was that the ICC would act differently. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what did develop most recently? Yeah, sure. So a couple weeks ago, there was an update. Every year they do... The head prosecutor writes an update on where the status of various preliminary investigations that she is looking into, uh, conflicts around the world. Um, among them now is obviously since 2015 is the situation in Palestine. And she says basically that responding to a lot of frustration, particularly amongst Palestinians, kind of wondering what's going on, what's taking so long, mm-hmm. um, saying we are wrapping it up which is similar language to what they used before, but now it's even a little bit more firm. We're really wrapping up. We're coming to an end. And she talks about that we are also expressing concern over a number of new issues that hadn't been mentioned before in previous reports. Um, one of the, Some of them have to do, obviously, with just developments on the ground. Um, and the main thing specifically regarding Israel that was mentioned is this new concern regarding the possibility of uh, West Bank annexation mm-hmm. um, based on the Prime Minister Netanyahu's um, pre-election or pre-election in April, pre-election in September announcements that he plans to annex the settlements, um, or specifically now the Jordan Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ICC head prosecutor expresses concern about that and says that they'll be watching carefully. Um, and then regarding the Palestinians, she mentions concern regarding three issues, sorry, two issues. One is the in the PA um, allegations by prisoners of the Palestinian Authority of torture by the Palestinian Authority security forces. Mm-hmm. And the other is the payment that the Palestinian Authority makes to security prisoners in Israeli jails that are suspects of terror attacks against Israeli citizens. Ah, okay. So those two issues that have not come up before in these reports are now all of a sudden four years into the after starting the report is all of a sudden 
uh, a, a part of it. Um, and I think this definitely concerned Palestinian uh, officials in Ramallah. So now you've been covering this for a year, and it was a year ago when the ICC prosecutor said she seemed ready to present her findings. As you said, they've said they were wrapping it up before. I mean, is that why you were tapped to focus on this at the end of last year, because you thought it was coming to an end? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a feeling that this was wrapping up. I think based on the conversations I've had, it was kind of they still wanted to interview more officials. Israel's actually been relatively cooperative. In the beginning, there was pressure from Israeli um, ministers not to cooperate with the ICC, but the foreign ministries actually has been cooperating, and uh, various security officials are given testimony, and, and the IDF is to a degree cooperated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the explanation that has been received is that there's been some sort of they're really dotting their eyes, crossing their teeth, talking to anyone and everyone relevant, and then before they want to make some sort of decision. I mean, if you asked analysts, I think some would probably say that they're a little nervous about the pushback they might get from both sides to any sort of report. So I think that they're kind of getting ready for that as well Mm -hmm. and wanting to make sure everything's um, in order before they put out uh, their final report. You know, what about the hundreds of rocket attacks from Gaza fired by both Hamas as well as Palestinian Islamic Jihad? Does that factor into this? Yes, that does get in. That is totally in the report. That has also been in previous uh, updates that have explained where the the status of the preliminary investigation is over the past four years. Mm-hmm. And that has always been included. Um, I only just mentioned those two new or three, if you include the West Bank annexation side, um, in addition to the, the two uh, concerns against the PA that were new. But the specifically rocket attacks against Israeli civilians are absolutely part of the report. Whether it's to the degree that Israel prefers, it's unclear at this point. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like the idea of wrapping this up pending no new developments seems a bit ludicrous because there always seem to be new developments. There's always a new development, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This could go on forever. Well, let me ask you this. The United Nations, we talk a lot about um, their bias against Israel. You know, 20-some resolutions questioning Israel's conduct versus one each questioning the conduct of just several other nations. Does the ICC have a similar reputation for bias, or are they kind of expected to conduct a more balanced inquiry as a judicial body? Um, I would say that I think in Israel there's kind of a morphing of the two together. I don't think, I think international community, ICC, UN are kind of all kind of underseen as being relatively hostile towards Mm -hmm. the Jewish state, um, and for good reason. But I think that there's been a little bit more willingness from Israel to work with the ICC mm-hmm. than maybe other UN bodies, particularly obviously UNRWA, which is trying to get defunded. Mm-hmm. Um, UNRWA is the Palestinian Refugees um, Agency. And I also think that has to do with this slightly more willingness to, to work with the ICC might have to do with the experience that the prosecutors have with the Israeli officials, that they feel like they're somewhat less biased. This also has to do with the fact that I think Netanyahu is kind of been known to be concerned about not very much in terms of international uh, pressure, but I think the idea of IDF soldiers being tried for war crimes in the ICC is something that he very much is concerned about and I think is worried about, which is also why I think that recently there's been pressure or there have been members of the Justice Ministry and the Attorney General's office that have kind of warned him about the possibility of annexing the Jordan Valley, of possibly landing Israel in the ICC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are warnings that I do think he takes seriously um, because it's just it's a kind of different playing field than a typical U.N. resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there an estimated time for when a verdict will be rendered, if that's the correct term, for an ICC decision? 
So no, uh, no one in the ICC will give a specific date. They say they're wrapping it up. Then again, they said that last year. Um, the fact that there's been, I think, a greater amount of pressure from the Palestinians to wrap it up. From what I've heard from both Israeli and Palestinian officials, they do believe it's in the coming six months. But again, even if a decision is made to open up an investigation, because this is just a preliminary investigation, right? So then a decision has to be made whether it's, they're going to open up a formal investigation. Uh. A formal investigation takes years, if not more. Uh, so it's a very long process ahead, but the officials I've spoken to believe that this time, they think in the next six months, it could, it could be wrapping up. Well, I do hope there's a resolution in sight, uh, don't we all? Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us this week at our Shabbat table is Jacob Maggot, the settlements correspondent for the Times of Israel. Jacob, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So I was at a funeral earlier this week, unfortunately. And what was new for me being at a civilian funeral for the first time was to see how these types of ceremonies are run through the rabbinate. And I've noticed this um, in weddings, but this is the first time I've noticed it in a funeral. And there are lots of things where I think American Jews can learn from Israel. And a lot of my time is growing up in America as a Jew, where we took things from uh, various parts of Israeli culture became part of our culture in, in America. Um, and I kind of, leaving the experience of being at a funeral in Israel um, was something I felt that Israelis could gain from American Jews in that this was a ceremony that was run by a Haredi rabbi that had no connection to the family that was being buried or that was burying their loved one. And the ceremony felt very dry, but not very personal um, because the requirement of that it be done by the rabbinate. And because the family was very secular, they had no personal rabbi that they could turn to to carry out the ceremony. And I felt a lot of meaning was kind of taken out of it because of that. Um, so that was something I was, I've been thinking about this week, and I look forward to sharing it at my Shabbat table. Jacob, is there freedom to, you know, here in America, there's such a variety of burial rituals and variety of memorials. I've been to so many different kinds of celebrations of life. Does that same freedom exist in Israel? Um, well, if you are ordained or, or have approval from the rabbinate, and that is a great deal of Orthodox rabbis, then, then they are given the opportunity to lead the ceremony. Um, but from my understanding, that this is not the case. If you are possibly a practicing conservative um, and you want some sort of more conservative style or just a non-Orthodox style burial service, that is not necessarily an option that the state can provide. Jacob, that sounds like it will be a very thoughtful conversation at your Shabbat table, and my condolences. Thank you. Sefi, what are you going to talk about? The number one reason why Russia is persistently in the news here in America is probably due to the ongoing fallout from their meddling in the 2016 presidential election in support of Donald Trump. Now, I haven't done a full-scale assessment to prove this, but I'd guess that the number one reason why Russia is persistently in the news in Israel is a very different one, and her name is Naama Issachar. Naama is a 26-year-old Israeli-American who spent many of her formative years living in Fairlawn, New Jersey, which just happens to be the town I grew up in as well and where my parents still live. When I go home on Sunday night to celebrate the first night of Hanukkah with my family, I'll be thinking of Naama, who won't be doing the same because she is locked in a Russian prison cell. In April, Naama was finishing up a backpacking trip in India and transiting through Russia on her way back to Israel. 
Instead of catching her connecting flight, she was arrested at the airport and forced to sign a confession in Russian, a language which she does not speak, admitting that she was smuggling nine grams of marijuana. Nama says that she had no idea how the drugs got in her bag, but even so, the idea of smuggling nine grams of weed is laughable. That is a minuscule amount. For this crime, Nama was sentenced to seven years in prison. Now, behind the scenes, all of this was apparently going down because Israel was preparing to extradite to the U.S. a Russian credit card hacker it had arrested named Alexei Burkov, who apparently stole millions of dollars from American citizens. Russia wanted to use Naama as leverage to repatriate the hacker and ensure that he evaded justice. In recent days, Russia has also briefly detained dozens of other Israelis, maybe even over 100 Israelis, heading home from Russia as this odd diplomatic spat threatens to spiral out of control. As we record this Thursday morning, Russian officials have just rejected Naama's appeal and have determined that she will need to serve the entirety of her term. Hopefully, a Hanukkah miracle will come about and she will be able to be safely back home in Israel very shortly. Thank you, Sefi. That is definitely a, a scary situation in Russia. And uh, hopefully, if it's not a Hanukkah miracle, it'll be a Christmas miracle. <laughs> because Sefi and Jacob, every conversation in our house these days revolves around Christmas, and our Shabbat table uh, will be no different. What we're getting so-and-so, which decoration project we're going to tackle next, which song the kids are singing at the winter concert, which I mentioned last week. Now, I can tell from the look in Sefi's eye right now what you're thinking, Sefi. Manya, you're Jewish and you work for the American Jewish Committee. Um, <laughs> but what I did not fully disclose last week is that I was raised loving Christmas. Um, in fact, my Orthodox Jewish grandfather loved Christmas. <laughs> While he did more than raise an eyebrow at the non-Jews that married into our family, much more than raise an eyebrow, even those who did become Jewish, they didn't let go of their Christmas traditions, and my grandfather didn't seem to mind that one bit. Christmas was the time of year when everyone, no matter what faith they practiced or didn't practice, they traveled from all around to come together, cook, eat, exchange presents, cook, eat, listen to carols, cook, eat. Yeah, see, it was a pretty Jewish affair. My father, who converted to Judaism, also loved Christmas, and this will be our first without him. He passed away in March, and my family will be coming here to celebrate, which is why I'll be off next week. So the pressure to preserve the Christmas celebration weighs heavily. But the pressure to preserve and protect our Jewish traditions without over-assimilating, that also weighs heavily, especially now. So I welcome pointers on how to do that, and I loved learning recently that many of our favorite carols were written by Jews. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he was a Jew. Let it snow, a Jew. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, of course a Jew would sing about a delicious delicacy at Christmas. Cue the music, please. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, So when Hanukkah starts Sunday night, we will light the menorahs and exchange presents and gelt. I have already placed an order for a dozen donuts, sufganiyot, from one of the more heralded kosher bakeries in North New Jersey. It's in your hometown, Sefi, of course. <laughs> and we will sing carols composed by Jews with maybe a few rounds of dreidel dreidel mixed in for good measure. 
We'll do that every night, including on Christmas Eve, when we remember my father entering the room in a white beard and a red suit bellowing ho, 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 and all of the other many traditions we've enjoyed over the years to celebrate our family. So, Sefi, Jacob, listeners, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Festivus, whatever you celebrate, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 